0: You're part of God's. I spend most of my day reading the Bible, you know, most of my night too. That's pretty much all I do. But occasionally I also watch movies about government assassins and uh, God's still making me holy. I'm not completely holy there. Let me just say that assassins is a word you have to be really careful with in a sermon. You don't want to stumble with that word. You with me on there? So, Born Identity is one of my favorite movies. The Born Identity. Any of you ever seen The Born Identity? You've seen it. All right. The Born Identity is about this government spy who wakes up not knowing who he is, who's been in an accident and he doesn't remember who he is. And the movie is this kind of fascinating um, case study in what would you do if you didn't know who you were? I mean, who would you trust? Where would you go? How would you survive? Who would you fight in hand-to-hand combat? You know, if you, if you didn't know who you were, what would you do? In some ways, that helps us to think through what we're going to talk about today. But let me tell one more story about identity. I came across this story, an article about it the other day. It was October 2019, Wintrust Arena in Chicago. It's a boxing match between two guys, uh, Conwell and Day. Charles Conwell, Patrick Day. Charles Conwell is an 11-time national champion. He's an Olympian in 2016. He's 10-0 in the ring this year, undefeated. Patrick Day was one time a celebrated boxer like Conwell, but he's kind of past his prime, but he's fighting to make some money. And so there's two ways that you can win a boxing match. The first is that you can go 10 rounds and you can land more punches on your opponent than your opponent lands on you. That's called winning by decision. So they're scoring how many times you hit your opponent. If you hit them more times than they hit you, they'll raise your arm at the end and you've won. What's the other way to win a boxing match? A knockout. You can knock them out. And so they're in this fight, and Conwell has knocked down Patrick Day twice, in the fourth round and in the eighth round, but both times he gets back up. But he knows going into the tenth round that he will win this fight by decision. He's landed enough punches on Day that there's no doubt he is going to win this fight. All he has to do in the last round is kind of dance around, avoid Day, keep him from hitting him, and the fight will be over, and he'll win by decision. But this is what we read. Conwell knows he can wait this round out. The fight's already his. But he also knows, as all boxers do, that people don't pay to see a 10-round decision. They pay to see a knockout. Sometimes before fights, Conwell will write himself a short note to hang above his bed. And before this one, he wrote, I will KO my next opponent and dominate. Conwell throws a straight right and an uppercut uppercut left and another right and another left. And the punches are flowing in a quick silver combination. And all day can do is to, to bear hug him to try to stop the punches. But Conwell will not have it. He shoves Day off and a big left hook hits Day square on the chin and he collapses onto the canvas and the referee doesn't even bother with the 10 count. It's clear this fight is over. The crowd's roaring and Conwell sh- jumps to the, to the ropes and pounds his chest. But then a man shoves his way into the ring and his voice is sharp with panic. Get away, he says. Get, get away from him. And only now does Conwell turn and see that Day has not moved. Conwell looks at the body on the mat, and for the first time in his career, he is afraid. Patrick Day died right there on the mat, in that boxing ring. And Conwell is haunted by this after. Really hard for him to get back into the ring because he says he wasn't himself in the ring. And you can hear it in that description. Once he stepped into that ring, he was no longer Conwell, Charles Conwell. Who is he? He's the boxer. And the boxer's job is to knock out his opponent. That's what people want to see. And so in the moment, in the 10th round, even though he knows he's going to win this, there is this incredible pressure on him to be the boxer and knock him out. And now he regrets it for the rest of his life. All right, those two stories set us up here in Genesis 29. This is a little bit longer. Stick with me. You can listen to it. Or if you've got your Bible open, you can read it. It sets us up. Let me me set the stage a little bit. Jacob, we're going back from last week. Jacob has, at this point, two wives, Leah and Rachel. That's a sermon for another time, polygamy in the Old Testament. We'll save that for another time. All right. But he's got two wives, Leah and Rachel. Rachel is his favorite wife. There's a long story that goes with that. Leah is not. I want you to just watch what happens between these two women. This is verse 31 of 29. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant. She gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, and she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I've borne him three sons. So she named him Levi. She conceived again. When she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I'll praise the Lord. You hear that? This time. I'll praise the Lord. And so she named him Judah, and then she stopped having children. Come with me into chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. And so she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her, said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? And then she said, well, here is Bilhah, my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me, and I too can build a family through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob slept with her, and she became pregnant, and she bore him a son. And then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He's listened to my plea and given me a son. And because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a second son. And then Jacob said, I have had a great struggle with my sister, and I have won. And so she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her servant Zilpah, and she gave her to Jacob as a wife. And Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, what good fortune. And so she named him Gad. And Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and then Leah said, how happy I am the women will call me happy. And so she named him Asher. And during wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants. Those are aphrodisiacs. And when he brought those to his mother Leah, Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you now take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said, he can sleep with you tonight and return for your son's mandrake. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrake. So he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah. She became pregnant. She bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. And so she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again. She bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift this time. My husband will treat me with honor because I've borne him six sons. And so she named him Zebulun. Sometime later, she gave birth to a daughter and she named her Dinah. This is the end here. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her. He enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant, gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph. And she said, may the Lord add to me another son. Do you read that and think to yourself like I do, is this for real? Is this for real? Um, And I think it's really important for us to kind of set the context for what's happening here in this story. You have these two women who are at each other's throats in this violent competition, this this competitive just conquest of one another, trying to beat each other by having more kids than the other one, even using their servants to have more children for themselves. So it's this abusive struggle too. One scholar I read about called this the baby wars, the baby wars. And we don't think about babies and having babies as a source of, as a source of conflict, but it's really important for us to set, set the context here. Leah and Rachel are in some ways victims of their culture. It's a world that values women based on how many kids, particularly male kids, they have for their husbands. In some ways, that's the the whole cultural narrative for women. Have children for your husband or you're not worth his love. That's terribly hurtful today. We see that. And uh, I want to be sensitive to that. But that's the world that Leah and Rachel are living in. And so they're caught up in this just, we might call it an identity pressure cooker. It's something that's trying to form and compress and make these women into something that the world wants them to be. And they're a, a product of that. They're victims of it. And it's producing so much desperation. I want you to follow this along here. This is for Leah first. Listen to how desperate she is for love and validation, how desperate she is to matter to her husband. After the first husband, after the first child, sorry, surely my husband will love me now. He doesn't. The second child, God sees I'm still not loved. The third child, now at last, my husband will become attached to me. The fourth child, only on the fourth one, this time I'll praise the Lord. It takes her four babies to realize this competition is not all it's cracked up to be. This baby-making competition for kids. But then Rachel, her sister, has some children through her sister's servant. And then all of a sudden, Leah is drawn back into this competition that she thought she was out of. And so she has two, servants by, two, two sons by her servant, Zilpah. And this is what she says after that. How happy I am, the women will call me happy. So is she actually happy or is she happy the women will think she's happy? You see the difference? I mean, it's like our, our, I mean, our, our, caref- our carefully curated social media presence. You know, where we produce these things that make us look so happy even when we're not so that everybody thinks we're happy. And if everybody thinks we're happy, maybe I'll be happy. Maybe I'll be happy. Rachel's not any better. This is what she says to her husband. Give me children or I'll die? Really? She's so obsessed with this, she gives her servant Bilha to Jacob. We read this, she can bear children for me too, and I can build a family through her. You see the language? What she acknowledges is that she is using someone else to become and be who she thinks she needs to become and be, to matter. She's going to use somebody else she doesn't care. We read on, finally, Rachel has a son of her own. And the first thing she says after all of this, when she finally gets her son of her own, what does she say? Look at this. God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. Finally gets the thing she's wanting and it's not even enough. You see it? You know, the greatest tragedy, perhaps, in this whole story, which is a story full of tragedies, the greatest tragedy is that she gets her wish, she has another son in Genesis 35, and you know what happens? She dies in childbirth. The son kills her. Look at that. This obsessive quest to matter in this culture eventually kills her eventually does. All right. So if you, let's switch spots for a second. If you were Leah and Rachel's minister, what would you say to them? Yeah, yeah, yeah do something else, right? Um, the first thing you'd have to work out probably is the whole polygamy thing. Like, what's it like with only one husband in here? You know, I think what you would probably say to them is who are you, really? Do you even know? Can you even remember? Uh, Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite authors, tells a story in one of his books, In the Name of Christ, and the story is about reading this book that was written in the 80s. The book is called Less Than Zero. I don't recommend the book based on what he says about it, but it's about these kind of violent, drug-frenzied sexual lives of the super rich and super elite living in Los Angeles and their children. And he says, you're reading these lo- this story of these, these young people who are just giving their lives to this craziness. And he says, the cry that arises from behind all of this decadence is clearly, is there anybody who loves me? Is there anybody who really cares? Is there anybody who wants to be with me when I'm not in control, when I'm crying? Is there anybody who can hold me and give me a sense of belonging? He says, feeling irrelevant is a much more general experience than we might think when we look at our seemingly self-confident society, feeling irrelevant. And I think that's what Leah and Rachel are running from. They don't want to be irrelevant. They want to matter. But to matter, they have to be and do what their world says they have to be and do to matter. And they can't disassociate or separate themselves from that pressure, it's more than they can bear. It's the same with the boxer who's in the ring. As soon as he steps into that ring, he's no longer himself. He's no longer Charles Conwell. He's the boxer, and the boxer has a job to do. That's why everybody's paid to see. They've come to see him. They're putting this pressure on him. What did they want? To, what did they come to see? A knockout. I mean, it's easy for us to think, yeah, maybe that would happen in boxing. It's kind of a violent sport, and you can kind of imagine somebody getting lost in that. You remember Tanya Harding? 1994, I remember this. I was young, getting ready for the Olympics, Tanya Harding hiring this guy, or her husband who knows, hiring this guy to beat up Nancy Kerrigan, who is the rising star in figure skating. You know, this sport of beauty and grace, I was about to like do something I'm not going to do that. Like we think, yeah, maybe a boxer would get lost up in that, but not something not somewhere so beautiful and gracious. But what happens? They get caught up in it. This pressure to keep mattering, not to become irrelevant. What that makes really clear to me is that the primary work in my mind, when it comes to building up the next generation, discipling young people into maturity, and one of our goals with this vision is to disciple 400 young people into mature disciples of Jesus Christ, 400. What becomes really clear to me is that the primary work of discipleship is identity work. Who are you really? We have a, a therapist that we refer to often um, who doesn't go to Highland, but has worked with us some and his specialty is sexual addiction, especially with men. And I was working with this young guy who was dealing with sexual addiction issues and um, just not making any progress. So I called up that therapist and I was like, what's the secret sauce? Like, what, what do you do? What do you say? And he said, oh, Eric, it's actually pretty easy. All I do is identity work. That's all I do. I was like, what do you mean by that? And he said, oh, this, Eric, this is what I've learned. That you cannot stop being... Who you are not until you know who you are. Isn't that good? I mean, it was eye-opening to me. You can't stop being who you are not until you know who you are. And so I think about Leah and Rachel. Let's go back to this. You're their preacher. They've come to the office. They're trying to sort out all their stuff. And can you imagine the difference in their life it might have made if they had heard these things? You open up your Bible and you begin to just speak these things over. Did you know this is true of you, Leah and Rachel, that you are already delighted in by God? That's Zephaniah three seventeen. Did you know that you are enough? You have been brought to the fullness of Christ. Colossians two ten. Did you know before any of this baby-making, you were already chosen by God? Colossians 3.12. Did you know that whether or not you ever have a kid for God, that you yourself are a child of God? 1 John 3.2. Did you know that you're forgiven, that you have been made great by God, that you're never alone because of the Lord, that you are already forgiven? pleasing to God, or maybe most significantly for this story, can you imagine if you'd been sitting with Leah and Rachel and you had taken them to Romans 8 and just said, let me just show you something really quick. Before you do anything else, let me just show you something. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And here you have these women who are in this obsessive quest to be loved, to matter in this culture. And what if they had heard before any of that, listen, you're already loved. Jacob may not give you the love you deserve. And I am sorry for that, but you are not without love. You've got more of it than you can even handle. More than the heights or the depths, right? Nothing could ever separate it from you. No matter if you have children or not, you are filled with the love of God. Can you imagine the difference that might have made in their life? Can you imagine the difference? I think what Jesus does for us, and we're going to be drawing on this year, especially as we move into the fall, is what Jesus does for us is he shows us who we actually are. And he calls us become what he is making us and once you see that clearly everything else matters less that you're willing to become irrelevant to the world because you matter so much to him henry now and that author i'll leave you with this quote it's so good he says it's here it's right here that the need for a new christian leadership becomes clear the leaders of the future will be those who dare to claim their irrelevance in the contemporary world as a divine vocation that allows them to enter into deep solidarity with the anguish behind all of the world's glittering success and to shine the light of Jesus there, he says. Okay. That's what we're going to do here. Deep identity identity work. We cannot be who God has called us to be if we don't know who that is. That's what we're going to do here. And my prayer is that you would know who you are in Christ Jesus. Let me say a prayer over you as we end today. God, I am thankful for your sweet and good word that builds us up i'm thankful for your body where we are built up through worship i'm thankful for the chance to serve to work alongside one another to love and encourage one another each of which builds us up lord our desire is to be built up into the holy temple that you are making out of us you are making us into god i know that in this room there are people who come today in desperation desperation of all kinds Maybe it's desperation about their kids or desperation about work or desperation about their own marriage or whatever it is, God. I pray that you would would allow them to see that to you, they matter already. That you know what they need and your love for them is beyond compare right now. Not based on what they do, how they perform what they produce but right now you love them and i pray that they would know that god god i'm so thankful for what you have done for us in jesus christ i'm thankful for what you're doing here in memphis and around the world i look to my left here and i see our missionaries nathan and karen luther i know they're traveling back to the philippines god i just want to pray your great graces over them we're thankful for this sweet time with them Would you bless their ministry on the other side of the world that is bringing you so much glory, God? Help us to be good partners to them. God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus, who is great and above all, glorious. We pray in his name. Amen.